Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 445 with Stephanie Evergreen. Stephanie is talking about making your charts outstanding, and she is a true pro on the topic. So you'll learn, one, how charts can transform culture, two, how to make use of tools you already have to make great visuals, and three, how to determine the most appropriate chart for your data. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to albums we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep445. And here's Stephanie's story. Dr. Stephanie Evergreen is an internationally recognized data visualization and design expert. She's trained future data nerds worldwide through keynote presentations and workshops for clients, including MasterCard, Adobe, Verizon, Head Start, American Institutes for Research, Rockefeller Foundation, Brookings Institute, and the United Nations. She writes a popular blog on data presentation at stephanieevergreen.com. Her two books on designing high-impact graphs, slideshows, and reports both hit number one on Amazon bestseller lists weeks before they even released. This spring, Dr. Evergreen is back with a second edition of one of those bestsellers in a brand new sketchbook with templates for making infographics and dashboards. So thanks to Stephanie for hanging out with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Stephanie. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm so excited to dig into your good stuff. I think we're going to get real dorky with this one, <laughs> uh, the charts and graphs and, and data. But uh, I want to go back in time first to your first job, which mm-hmm. I understand is at McDonald's. And you were <laughs> actually vegetarian at the same time. How'd that go? Yeah. Well, as teenagers do, I think you just get whatever job you can because you're desperate for money. So McDonald's was close by my house and seemed like a good idea. But yeah, yeah, I was vegetarian. And I thought I would be running the cash register or something but they put me in the kitchen. I think because they could sense I could handle a lot of pressure. That's my guess. Ah. But it was just the worst place to be, you know, cooking burgers all day. (laughs) So I will say I ate a lot of French fries because that was vegetarian. So that counted. But yeah, you know, I think a lot of us are there where we're in jobs and we're just kind of doing what we're told, even if it doesn't totally line up with our ideal situation. So I guess that's why people come listen to you and your podcast. 
Oh, sure. Thank you. Well, I think that is one of the reasons. And, you know, and I think that's kind of the name of the game in terms of early career isn't quite ideal. <laughs> and, and then uh, you learn and, and uh, acquire skills and tools and, and you're able to get better and better fits, which are, are more rewarding as, as time goes by. Hopefully that's the trajectory. Yes, indeed. You know, and it's so funny because when I think back to that time, I couldn't even conceptualize that the, the thing I'm doing now was even a job. Tell me right? more about that. <laughs> well, I mean, this was like, we're talking like 1995. And I, I mean, PowerPoint that back then was, I think when I went to college, even after that time, and I was doing presentations, it was transparencies, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So I didn't even think about data or graphs or that I could make a whole career teaching people how to do this better it just wasn't the technology wasn't even there for us to dream of it yet. You know, it's so funny we talk about the transparency is we I remember at Bain we would hear the the war stories from the partners like back in my day when I was a consultant we had to spend our time uh, measuring transparencies with a ruler <laughs> cutting them out with an exacto knife and then putting them all together we're like wow that is wild. <laughs> I just figured you'd use fewer slides, but no, you just <laughs> spent forever making them. Yeah, it was a little rough and tumble. Technology has helped us, but in some ways, I think we're still probably putting in just as much labor to get our stuff looking great, you know? Oh, oh totally. Well, so let's hear about your book here, Effective Data Visualization. Yes. The right chart for the right data. What's the scoop here? Well, yeah. So the big idea is that we can tell better more useful data stories if we just learn a little bit about the chart choices that are out there today and when to use them. And that it's totally doable to make those awesome charts right inside Excel. And it's really focused on that because I think that people need to know how to be the masters of the tools they already own. And that great visuals don't necessarily require a graphic designer or someone who knows how to code. Most of my readers, most of my clients, especially in that Fortune 500 arena, are working under tight deadlines where they've got to turn around slide decks really fast for these decision-making meetings, and they need to know how to just use the tools that they've already got in front of them. Okay, so you're making them in Excel, not PowerPoint. Well, all of Excel is baked right into PowerPoint, so it's kind of the same thing. Okay, I, I hear you there. Yeah. So, so then maybe we, we won't dork out on uh, PowerPoint versus Keynote versus Prezi versus ThinkCell versus oh, Meco well, Graphics versus we... Illustrator. <laughs> but if you have a one-minute commentary, we can entertain it. <laughs> well, I mean, I do work a lot in, in slideshow arenas as well. And I don't really, I'm not even familiar with all those. I think you know more about this topic than I do. But I always think my, the biggest strength of whatever software you choose is that you have to be able to collaborate with other people on it. So mm -hmm. that means they also need to own it, first of all, and that poses some limitations because not all of these softwares are just distributed as widely as like maybe PowerPoint is. And people need to be able to edit things in it like charts. That's always been one of my frustrations with Illustrator. It's that like it's a picture file. So you put it in a slide and if anybody needs to like adjust one number or a decimal point or something, you have to go back and ask somebody to remake it. So not all software can be editable and widely distributed. So that's why I tend to favor the Microsoft stuff because people have it and we just need to know what to do with it. Okay. Fair enough. So now this book is your second edition. Can you tell us, did you learn any kind of hard lessons as you were interacting with the marketplace about what's tricky, confusing, missing that kind of showed up in the second edition? Yeah, I'll say three things. So first of all, the first one was printed in two colors. So like a spot mm. color of blue and, and then black and white. And even though you'd be looking at the same screenshot in PowerPoint that you'd be seeing in front of you on your screen, it's just harder to, to see it if it isn't in color. So 
This time around, everything's in full color. That's a huge difference. People were asking more questions about interactivity, so there's a whole chapter in there on how to build interactive dashboards in Excel. Dashboards are, I think, one of the bigger trends that's been coming out in the business world lately. Everybody wants their sexy dashboard, so we put together some tools on that. And I and included a couple of new graph types that I think since the first edition, people have been more exposed to them, and so they understand them better, and they're getting more popular. Oh, which are these? One of them would be the waterfall chart. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this one. It was... Oh, yes. Okay, yeah. So it was, you know, pioneered, at least legend goes, that it was invented at McKinsey, and they were using it with all of their consulting groups to show uh, where the change over time actually broke down, like where increases and decreases occurred. And I think for people who are not looking at it in a business context, they don't easily wrap their brains around what they're seeing. Um, but we've been seeing them more and more commonly, like in the newspaper. I saw one that was trying to explain Brexit. But so the more that we see them and the more that we're exposed to them, I think people outside of very specific corporate financial uh, settings are able to understand them. So I included that sort of thing this time around. Well, you know, I, I remember it's really funny. I'm thinking back to my Bain days. We're talking about charts here. I remember the, I thought the Rolls Royce of charts, at least as far as we were concerned, and like the the granddaddy of them was the, the Marameco. <laughs> and, and most people don't even know what that is. It, it's, yeah. It, it's like a rectangular, sort of like a pie chart, except you're, you're describing proportions on two dimensions. So you might see the proportion of the engine market for aircraft versus motorcycles versus cars versus trucks. And then within each of those, the proportion that each competitor has. And it, I remember at one point there was a client who just refused to have any part of those. <laughs> but there was a big debate in our team. Like one of them said, it's the best way to show it. He's like, but they hate it. We can't do it. And so, yeah, it, uh, emotions can run high. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And people do, they, they really feel strongly about the things that they've been used to seeing for a long time. So, you know, there is a fine line between where do we push what's actually best practice versus respect where people are at. And it is, it can be hard to know. You kind of got to feel it out a little bit. And that's why I think we have to have lots of choices so that we don't just always think that there's one option. Mm -hmm. That's handy. So you've also got a, a data visualization sketchbook that's accompanying this. And, and what, what do we see in a sketchbook? Well, it's kind of the opposite of uh, making graphs in Excel. It's encouraging us to turn off our computers. So the sketchbook is full of templates so that you can use pencil in the sketchbook and actually draw stuff out. And the purpose here is actually to let us think. Because I think what happens a lot of the times is that we just go straight to PowerPoint or we go straight to Excel or whatever software we're using. It doesn't even really matter. And we just start clicking buttons like, okay, I, maybe I'll try this chart. Okay, maybe I'll try this chart. And, and we're just heading straight to the button clicking before we've even really thought about what we need to do or show or the big picture of the whole presentation. So what we see when we look at their research around sketching is that when we take out all the distracting like menus and buttons and fun things that we can click and we just let ourselves have some empty space, that's when our working memory actually does processing and it lets us think. So the sketchbook is like your excuse to get out of the office and go draw for a while. You're going to come back with so many better ideas than you would have if you would have just stared at your computer screen. You know, I, I like that. And I remember we used to sort of sketch them out roughly on post-it notes 
and then rearrange the post-it notes, the nice big rectangular ones, and and say, oh, no, I don't want this type. I want that type. And it was fun. It made you feel a little bit like an artiste, you know, who's designing something as opposed to a computer cog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and I always say you don't have to be a good artist. You just have to know what that little blob represents later yeah. when you're back at, at your computer, you know? So the sketchbook has templates for, it's got graph paper in it and dot grid paper, which is just fun. There are dashboard templates and like several varieties. There are varieties of handout templates. We've got a slide guide in there and a report structure in case you're doing like those big, long report pages. Okay, that, that's cool. Well, so so we're going to get into the ins and outs of, of all kinds of stuff here, but maybe you can frame up the why for us. So beyond you and I just being dorks for, for cool charts, uh, what's really the, the value or the impact on an organization when it comes to having the right chart for the right data versus uh, maybe a suboptimal chart for the given data? What does that result in? Yeah, I know. I mean, it seems so minor. Like, let's learn how to push this button inside PowerPoint. But the thing we get out of those minor little details is culture change and the way that organizations operate and how people inside those organizations talk to each other. And all of that affects bottom line. Like, I'm sure that you've experienced this many times, probably your listeners as well. I was just on the phone with a client this week who told me that the CEO of his company was getting frustrated by the bad presentations that they saw because he knew that they were missing opportunities to move good ideas forward. Like it was getting lost in all the noise that was happening in these bad slides and the cluttery graphs that are making the point kind of hard to see. The CEO said that they were in meetings that were taking like five times too long, meaning they never even had time to get to the good ideas because they didn't even make it that far down the agenda. I mean, yeah. that's just, it's such a waste of the precious time we get with people to confuse them and to head them off in the wrong direction when we could just be making the decisions that we need to make and getting to market faster. Okay. I'm with you. That's good. Well, so then I was just going to ask, you know, when can visualization be be harmful or counterproductive? And it sounds like that's it right there. It's like <laughs> you've made a big freaking complex and intricate and confusing chart that we're all just sort of squinting and leaning forward and scratching our heads in a meeting and and our time is getting you know consumed by it but are there other times you, you'd recommend hey don't even start you know make it a chart just uh, be chartless and you'll be better off yes oh my gosh there are so many times i think we'll just be better off first of all if there's not a obvious point to be made don't make a chart all right. Because people are going to look at the chart. That's how our brains are built. We're built to look at pictures. So if we show people a bunch of pictures that don't have any kind of obvious point, that's how we get to the confusion, right? So unless there's actually a story, like a headline, a takeaway idea that you are presenting that that chart supports, just don't. Okay. Yeah. I'm with you. Very good. Well, all right. So that's your first point is to have a point. Yes, exactly. We've got something that we're trying to say here as opposed to, hey, what the heck? You know, I can I, I could just push this yeah. button and, and it has more colors than the other way. So so very good. <laughs> well, then tell us what makes the difference between a, a good and a bad chart? What are sort of like the top mistakes you see over and over again that, that need to be stopped? 
Yeah, I think that the the biggest mistake people have is they jump straight to what's the best chart type. And this happens to me all the time. I see it every single day because people will try to pick my brain all the time. They'll, it's kind of like asking for some free consulting, right? So people will, will approach me and they'll be like, so Stephanie, um, can I pick your brain? And I'm like, oh, this is like, I could bill for this, but go mm -hmm. ahead. <laughs> and they'll, they'll say something totally random. Like my boss wants me to show our four different income revenues over the last eight quarters across our six departments, what's the best chart type? And I'm like, I don't know. And everybody wants to do that. They want to run to what's the best chart type. And when we ask people to fix graphs, they focus on the chart type. When what we have to do first is understand our point. Okay. And that's hard because it means you got to know what you're talking about. And, and people don't always know it that well, or they are afraid to say their point. Yes. Yes. Because they're going to offend somebody. Yes. If I say, you know, this division has been shrinking while all the others have been growing and the guy who runs that division is in the room and I single that out, yes. it's like, you're a jerk who's got it in for him. <laughs> yes. And now he's my sworn nemesis. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so back to when can data visualization be harmful? Well, this is definitely one of those times when you're telling people truths that they really don't want to hear. Uh, it's hard. So, you know, I think we got to wordsmith our points really carefully because I know that it can be political. I've had plenty of people who tell me we just cannot say things that straightforward around here. You kind of got to dance around it a little bit. So, yeah, but I've also seen people who have intentionally perhaps shown stuff that looked cluttery or confusing uh, so that they were hiding the points that they were should have been showing. Yeah. Boy, you know, boy, I'm having a flashback. All of a sudden you, just, you triggered something. I remember we were working for a client who was in, they built exhibits for like trade shows. So big honking, cool looking things that you'd pass by like at the consumer electronics show or something. And so they were not doing super well. And one of their people made a slide that graphed the growth rate of the industry over time and then graph pointed downward so it's like as you can see this is a bad industry right now but that was very misleading because the numbers were all positive it's still growing <laughs> it's just growing more slowly now than it was uh, so you should also be growing yes. and, and then we sort of had to counter that point and and sure enough it, it resulted in some poor decisions because they're like hey what can we do it's a bad economy bad market i mean you know, our hands are tied as opposed to no step it up and get after it because there's opportunity that we're not uh, snagging here You've said so many interesting things in here. So first of all, in that last piece that you just said, it's really in how we frame the takeaway. The takeaway could be things are really dropping or the takeaway could be we have an opportunity here. So it's really in how you frame it. And I think if we don't take that opportunity to frame the story and to frame the takeaway, people will run off in all kinds of different directions. And that's the last thing that we want them to do. The other thing that was interesting about what you brought up is that what we see in the research is that people, especially if they're not like the total nerds on the data topic, well, they just see big picture. Right. So they, they would just see this line going down and they're like, oh dear. And they wouldn't <laughs> be thinking as carefully about it as you were, where you're like, well, you know, like it's just the rate of change here. Really, this is what we should be talking about. And they don't look at things like this scale that was used and stuff like that. So... I do think that it's easy for people to manipulate data and have it cast a certain story just by small formatting tweaks that most people are likely to miss.
Oh yeah, boy! Another flashback here. <laughs> I remember once we were we were in a meeting, and someone had talked about the formatting and the axes. Like someone had done the little thing where we jump from from zero to like boop, to like three hundred, uh, you know, on the y axis. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then in mid meeting, the partner stopped uh, the guy who was presenting on our team, and he said, "What is this?" He's like, "What is this business week style?" garbage doing here it's like i don't ever want to see that again wow <laughs> he's like that is misleading and i'll have no part of it wow. it's so intense <laughs> that's and i love that they threw business week under the bus on that oh, one that's yeah. hilarious uh, i don't know i don't actually know the business week does that a lot but <laughs> I, don't I was know like either. whoa that's <laughs> funny well yeah and we just saw like this was making the rounds very recently on twitter a climate scientist who posted a uh, picture you know there's a pretty famous climate change graph called the hockey stick graph al gore showed it in his famous mm-hmm. inconvenient truth and it's basically how global temperatures have stayed pretty flat but in the past few years like it's just skyrocketed and there was a climate scientist really recently who just redid the graph so that the y-axis starts at zero and when you do that it's a flat line you don't see any change whatsoever yeah. and he's like see climate change is a hoax so it's it's incredibly common and incredibly easy to manipulate the data to have it say whatever you want so i think that you know with all of this discussion there is also this moral and ethical obligation that we have to the truth and you know it's difficult because everybody interprets the truth however it's truthful to them that's always going to be really tricky oh yeah you know i don't remember who said it but i think they said uh figures don't lie but liars figure mm. i thought that's well said i you're like, like that. that's true mm-hmm. the numbers are accurately saying what they're saying but you've chosen those ones and chosen to present them in that way for a particular agenda yeah. which um you know could be helpful or or hurtful so okay so enough enough um uh, reminiscing <laughs> And ranting. Well, and that's we see that in the research that people are convinced by charts. So there was a study that was published. I'll have to remember exactly what it was, uh, where it was published, but it was it presented the exact same data to study subjects. It's just that one had a chart, and the chart didn't add any new information. It was just a visual of the stuff that was already in the narrative anyway. So it was just the exact same narrative, just one had an additional repetitive picture, and people voted the one that had the picture as more trustworthy and believable because we just were wired to like believe data. Yeah, that's striking. Well, okay, so then let's get back into making good charts. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the first point is to have a point. Don't (laughs) jump to the, hey, what chart type do I Mm -hmm. need? But rather, okay, what's the story? What's the point? What is the the main thing I'm trying to convey here? And then once you're clear on that, what's the next step? I think it's to know your audience. And sometimes your point changes depending on the audience you're talking to, to be honest with you. But I think you got to know what their prior level of knowledge is like are they big old nerds with me and i can just talk about my p values or is it going to be somebody who's like data smart but not necessarily a nerd or am i talking to the public who tends to be folks who are data scared i mean the way that we show our data to them and even the words we use in our point is going to change depending on which group we're talking to and i think also partly one of the questions there is how willing are they to even engage with me like am i fighting a hard battle here to get people to even look at me or are they begging for me to show up and give them this data Mm -hmm. Um, all those things are going to factor into the chart that you eventually choose so i think once you know your audience pretty well and the point that you need to make to them then you can start thinking about the right chart okay cool so let's say we've done that you know we've got the point 
we've got the audience and now how do we go about uh, choosing the chart? Yeah. So I think that part of our determination there, and this is the way that the book is set up is you have to know a little bit about the nature of your data, right? So are you talking about survey responses here? Are we talking about parts of a whole? Are we trying to talk about how the trends over time? Once we know that sort of thing, then we can look at the chart choices that are available. Even within some of those, you know, once you think about maybe trends over time, there are lots of choices in there and some are going to highlight certain angles of your story better than others do. So we make our determinations there based on uh, the point and, and the audience and how much they're able to read those graphs in the first place. Sometimes it's a matter of how many data points we have to show that helps us determine what our graph type is going to be. And then from there, the last step of the process, at least the way that I go about making graphs, is to sharpen up your point a bit. And that usually requires having to strip out some of the clutter and some of the noise that's baked into our chart defaults. I'm talking about stuff like taking out tick marks and then really, really making your point obvious by using some color on the parts of the data that are matching your headline. Okay. Yeah. So that's great. And, and when it comes to these defaults, can you save new defaults? You can. Yeah. At least in mm -hmm. Excel. I'm not so sure about other graphing software that's out there, but yeah, you can, you can go through the process of making one amazing chart and then make that your new default chart so that you don't have to go through all of that elbow grease every single time. Oh, that's great. And at Bain, we used to use Mecco graphics, which I liked because the default was just clean and sharp, as opposed to a lot of times in, in Excel PowerPoint, it's like I've got all of these background <laughs> lines and gray width things that just mm -hmm. don't need to go there. And because I was using a more another software program more often, it, it took me a while to figure out how to make those go away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I just like, totally. and I was like, and I think I walked away thinking, Excel sucks yeah. <laughs> making charts, <laughs> but you're here to set me straight. Yeah. And, and we walk in the book through how to go about making those new templates so that you don't have to go do all that cleanup work every single time. Because everybody is in this place where like, my graphs have to be done tonight because my presentation tomorrow right. and you just don't have time to mess around with all that stuff and that's exactly. why that is exactly why people would go to things like a specialty software like Mecco graphics is that what you said it was called mm -hmm. yeah yeah because they might have some cleaner defaults but the thing i like about excel I never really have understood if this is because Microsoft is so smart or so stupid, but you can hack <laughs> Excel. You can, I mean, it's got some bad things built into the defaults, but you can hack it and make it do things it does not naturally do. Like there are graph types we introduce in the book that most people have probably never seen before that are so high impact and powerful, but it's just that we had to hack it from some existing graph types in Excel. And some of these other softwares that are out there for graphing won't let you hack. It's so useful friendly that you can't get more out of it that you might want to get. Well, now that's very intriguing. Can you give us an example of uh, a super high impact chart type? It's, it's almost like the secret in and out menu or something you're about to drop <laughs> here. So, so could you yeah. just have high impact chart and how do I secretly access it? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to say that in 2019, the Rolls Royce of graph types is going to be a dumbbell dot plot. And I'll tell you what this means. It looks like a tiny little Popeye dumbbell where it's like two circles connected by a line. Mm -hmm. 
And the reason that it's so powerful is because we interpret dots so well. We've seen plenty of research on how human brains interpret different graph types. And position is the easiest graph type for human brains to read, meaning like we're really good at seeing a dot's position on an axis, even better than we are at reading a bar chart, which would be length. We're really good at noticing position. We just don't have a lot of position built into our default graphs. So dumbbell dot plots are even better because it's two dots showing position and then the stick between the two and the stick emphasizes the distance between these two data points and so if you've got stories that are about like the gap that occurred between these two things or the disparity we're seeing between these two things or how much growth occurred between these two data points the dumbbell dot plot is the rolls royce of graph types to show that and i think everybody has those stories about gap or growth or disparity so I, this graph type is so amazing and I end up having to recommend it to everybody I ever consult with. And you are like, how would I make this in Excel? But it's really just a hack of a line graph with markers. Okay. A line graph with markers mm -hmm. and you just sort of erase some things so mm -hmm. that all that remains is your dumbbell. Yeah. Yeah. You have to erase some things. You have to add some things. It's remarkably easy though. We're talking like under two minutes of formatting to make your first one. And then that can be a template too. And Stephanie, are you aware that at least on my computer, when I do a Google image search for dumbbell dot plot, the top three results are stephanieevergreen.com. <laughs> Well, I mean, I am a fan. You are, <laughs> you are the dumbbell dot plots ambassador. <laughs> well, that's great. I think I just came up with my next tattoo. <laughs> do you have tattoos? I do. I have several. <laughs> are they charts? <laughs> you know, one was a bit data driven. Actually, I, I counted some things in my life for a while, and then I and then I had that tattooed. So, yeah, you know, I am a nerd. Well, that's fascinating. <laughs> so well, let's see here. Uh, there, there's so much good stuff. So we've talked through a, a little bit of what makes the difference. What's the process? Would you say that there's maybe like a quality control checklist you might recommend in terms of, all right, after you're done making your chart, here are the things you want to, to make sure you have done or not done. Yeah. I wrote the checklist. I think it has like 52 points on it. So it's not like, uh, just count them on your hand. But we broke out and the, like, I, I mean, I did my dissertation on this stuff. So I was really down in the weeds of like what the research says about how charts can work best. And so I broke that research out into 52 checkpoints. And it really is exactly what you're saying. Once your graph is finished, run it through these checkpoints and make sure you're hitting all the marks. And part of the checklist is about things like making sure you got the right chart type. Um, parts of it are about making sure you have a headline, but it also goes into stuff about like, color and the font sizes we should be using and the order that we show the data and the graph and how many decimal places we have to report to and that sort of thing. So we actually had a grad student who did her dissertation on this checklist. On your checklist. Yeah. And there she, you go. and it worked out so well in her data that we have it turned it into an interactive website. I'll send out the link. So you just go to the website, you upload an image of your graph and it will walk you through all the checkpoints. Any place where you didn't quite meet it will give you a resource that shows you how to fix it. That is really cool. And so if you've got 52, I'm going to apply a little bit of 80, 20 rule magic here. Could you share, are there a couple of them that you see all the time? 
that are very destructive. So perhaps the the most critical boxes to be checked in this checklist. I think the one I see, in addition to not having a good point, I think the one that I see that's the most harmful is probably not tuning into colorblindness. Not turning into colorblindness. Tuning into, like paying attention oh, okay. to. Yeah, because colorblindness is part of uh, meeting the Americans with Disabilities Act requirements. And it sounds like so like technical, but it is. We are required to make sure our stuff is accessible to people. And colorblindness is one of those uh, disabilities that is sort of invisible. So you don't really know if anybody in your audience is colorblind, but the red green colorblindness is the most common form. And one in 10 white men in the US are red, green, colorblind. One in six no Japanese men are red, green, colorblind. And I think, so when we show people red and green who are colorblind, they see those as two shades of brown. Yeah. And I think the red, yellow, green stoplight color system is so prevalent in so many organizations and it is absolutely not compliant. It is absolutely not colorblind friendly. And, you know, it doesn't work in black and white. I mean, it doesn't work for so many reasons, but it's so baked into our culture. That's gotta be the number one thing I see. Well, that is striking. That seems like there's a compelling headline for a blog post or something here. How your charts are violating the law <laughs> and you don't even know. It. Yeah, you know, but it's so true. Like I have clients who have come to me because they've been sued because the stuff that was on their website was not compliant. Wow. And we are seeing that like more and more. There was a grocery store chain. Was it Piggly Wiggly or one of those down south was sued? I think even Beyonce was sued recently because her website wasn't compliant. So, I mean, you know, if it can happen to Beyonce, it can happen to any of us. That's a good truism for life. Yeah, this is probably the only area where if it can happen to Beyonce, it can happen to us. Oh, boy. Well, there's a, a few more things I got. want to make sure we tick through. Cool. When it comes to slide headlines, it sounds like we're on the same page with this, but I'll, I'll let you say it. What should we do with slide headlines? Yeah, just tell people your point. Right. So instead of saying uh, sales over time, right, it should say, what about the sales over time? Sales are going up over time. Sales go. are going down over time. Sales have stayed the same over time. Sales have stayed the same and we need to do something about that. It can get a bit heavy handed if you want it to. It doesn't have to. It can simply be descriptive. It just needs to be an insight so that people know why the heck they're looking at this thing and what you want them to know. Certainly. And pie charts, why are they bad? <laughs> well, they don't have to be bad. I've seen some pretty good ones, but I think the issue is when we try to cram a hundred data points, a hundred little slices into the pie, people can't really read angle very well. Like I, how I said earlier, position is great. Length is okay. Angle is bad. We're not good at reading angle. If you only got a couple slices in the pie, it's going to be fine. But if you try to put a bunch more in there, then we're in some trouble. Mm -hmm. And so you'd recommend a, a stacked bar chart instead? Sure. Or simply a bar. I mean, I think pie charts, people like them because it, it shows that we're talking about 100% of the data, that the data total to 100. I'm not sure the fact that data total to 100 is actually the lead story we really need to be trotting out. So I'm okay with just turning it into a bar chart. Okay. Very good. And when it comes to, hey, you've got a boatload of text. Mm. How do we visualize that? I mean, I guess you got a word cloud, but any tips oh. for that or can we do any better? Yeah, yeah. So that's one of the biggest changes in the second edition of the book. We um, had the beginnings of a qualitative chapter in the first edition, and we scrapped it almost entirely and rewrote it. There are like 15, 16 chart types in there for showing qualitative data. Word clouds are like at the bottom of the list. There are so many better ways to do it. I mean, word clouds are a step up from just let me give you a bunch of quotes because nobody can really read a bunch of quotes like that. Um, but there are so many quotes 
cool options that are out there now, especially like some that keep things more purely qualitative and some that lightly quantify and turn it into some numbers. There's just a huge spectrum of choices. In fact, this book is the biggest compendium of qualitative visualization options that we've ever seen. So we're really excited to get this out into people's hands. And so by we, you mean you mean mankind as a whole? Yes, humankind, yes. Well, mm-hmm. oh, thank you. Even, mm-hmm. even more inclusive. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. All right. So, Stephanie, tell me, any final thoughts before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? I feel like I should say something here because you give me the opportunity to. So, I will say this. Okay. One final thought on understanding your audience. This is my secret. Figure out what their burning questions are. Figure out what keeps this group up at night. Like, what are they worried about? Because then you come into your presentation with the answers to the things that keep them up at night. That's how you get a promotion. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is how you have to structure everything that you do is to just answer your audience's burning questions. All right. Lovely. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I don't know that I have a quote as much as I have some inspiration. So uh, is that okay? Oh, sure. Okay. When I was doing the research for my sketchbook, I was looking at the old artists, Da Vinci, Picasso, Van Gogh, and they all drew they sketched because when you sketch, you work out issues. You don't want to have to work out on expensive canvas with expensive paint. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you get your space to breathe and think and to study your subject really, really well and play around with ideas so that when you do have time in front of the canvas or in front of your dashboard software, your presentation software, it's so efficient and fast and easy because you already have a plan in mind. So yeah, that's my inspiration. Let's just do what Van Gogh did. Except not the cutting off the ear part. (laughs) (laughs) And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? One of my favorite researchers is Richard Mayer. He's got a book out, I believe, but also several published studies. He's, he does a lot of like multimedia presentation, um, study stuff. All of his stuff has this little glimmer of humor to it that just makes me laugh. So I'll tell you about one. He had this study where he showed the audience like the typical death by bullet point. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And At the end of the presentation, they gave the study subjects uh, a survey on just like feelings, attitudes, stuff like that. And the audience was reporting mild to high levels of general annoyance with the speaker. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And they couldn't put their finger on why because they like weren't design students, you know, so they weren't like, oh, it's because her slides are so terrible. They just left feeling like mild to high annoyance. And I feel like that's the last thing we need to do. It's already hard enough to like get people to pay attention to us without annoying them. So let's not add to it with bad slides. It's a good one. It explains (laughs) maybe a a real force behind annoyance Mm -hmm. at work. (laughs) And how about a favorite book? My current favorite book, I just finished one. It's totally, well, probably unrelated to all the, the rest of this, but it was written by Cal Newport called Digital Minimalism. Mm-hmm. And it's about, um, it's so related to this sketching stuff because it's about how technology is interrupting our ability to think big. And he blames social media in particular, uh, but the whole thing was just a very fascinating read about how our minds are so filled with constant check-ins and updates from our aunt's second cousin that we lost our ability to think. And it was—it struck me because I think he's got a lot of, of things he's saying correct that are that are right in the book. But it struck me because I realized that you know everybody says their best ideas happen when they're in the shower, right? Because that's the one place you can't take your phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, yeah, that's where we think, right? When we aren't like staring at something. So anyway. 
Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool? So that it helps you be awesome at your job. I'm going to say a tape measure. Believe it or not, I have to bust out my tape measure and measure things on my screen all the time. I want to make sure like everything is proportionate and accurate. And I will sometimes actually just get out my tape measure and make it happen. Yeah, that, yeah, that's <laughs> excellent. There was a super genius at Nintendo who's behind a lot of their hits like Zelda and Super Mario Brothers. I don't remember his name. But that was one of his things is he would carry a tape measure with him everywhere he went and ask people, hey, hey, how long do you think this is? <laughs> Just like as a game. That's what he did. And, and like, that's pretty weird. But, <laughs> but I think that's connected to his genius. So I, I'm going to give you that same credit there. Cool. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. And how about a favorite habit? A favorite habit. I think my favorite habit will be going to the gym in the morning when mm -hmm. I want to start my day because I think all that fresh air and oxygen and endorphins just sets your brain up for smart thinking. Now it doesn't always help your hairstyle because then you have to shower and then go straight from there to like your work life. So there are trade-offs here, but I do think that the oxygen is helpful. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with audiences and clients? You know, I think the thing that resonates with people the most is when someone complains that it seems like this is not going to take a lot of work. And I'm like, you know what? It's your job. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to take you a minute to put a good slide together, but also that's what you're paid to do. So yeah. I mean, I'll share lots of efficiency tips, but at the core, getting people to use our data for decisions is what we were hired to do. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? My website is going to be a great place, stephanieevergreen.com. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I would say find one baby step you can take at your office. It might be like, all I can do is make a great title. It might be, I'm going to take that pie chart and recast it as something else. It might be, I'm going to go learn how to make a dumbbell dot plot. And I do have instructions for that on my website. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that's going to be my challenge. Go, go change one thing. And then like in another month, change another. And then in like two years, you'll have a whole revolution. Beautiful. Well, Steffi, this has been lots of fun. I wish you lots of luck with the books, effective data visualization and the sketchbook and, and all your adventures. Thank you so much for having me. I really loved that fundamental reminder from Stephanie. It's not about which chart type do I choose, but rather what's the point you're trying to make? Stop and think. What would be that slide headline that accompanies it? That one sentence that shares, hey, this is a big deal, not a big deal, or, everything's fine, or we have a crisis. And often that involves stepping away from the keyboard and away from the screen and doing a little bit of a sketching and pondering up front. I can save you time later on. Wise words from Stephanie. Again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash app 445. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It's Judy Holler. She's talking about how to make fear your homeboy. That's the title of her book. So we got tips and tricks associated with boosting confidence and pushing past fear and resistance. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. 
If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.